0: your bibles tonight to the book of acts chapter number one acts chapter number one Man, what a blessing to be in the lord's house tonight i'm thankful for all the praise that we heard tonight Isn't that good man i tell you it uh i feel like a lot of times the folks that don't come to prayer meeting part of the reason that god doesn't seem as real to them and that's why they don't come is because they're not coming because how could you come and hear all that god's doing in people's lives and not walk away convinced that God is real. Amen. He is answering people's prayers. He's saving people. He's working mightily and effectually in people's hearts and in their lives. And we hear it week after week. I don't know about you, but my faith needs Wednesday night prayer meeting. Amen. I ain't fussing at you. You're here tonight. Amen. I'm fussing all those people that ain't here. But I'm not fussing at you tonight. You're here. I'm just sharing with you, man. It encourages me, man. It blesses me. It helps me. Uh, to be reminded time and time again how faithful the Lord is, how real He is in people's lives. Acts chapter number 1, I'd like to begin reading in verse number one worry we'll down to verse number 11. This is a familiar passage of Scripture, I think, to many of us here tonight. Uh, but let's share some things that God's laid on our heart through it. Uh, Acts chapter number 1, verse number 1, the Bible says this, "...former treaty have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach." Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of things, of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. But wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, use it in our hearts and in our minds. and Lord, may we walk away tonight knowing we have heard from you and we have met with you, Lord, and knowing that eternal spiritual business has been conducted and confirmed in our hearts and minds, Lord. May we have our hearts open to your truth. And Lord, may this not just be another few moments that we spend sitting in a pew, but may this be transformative in our walk with you. And we'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished, Lord. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm particularly interested in this passage tonight in a phrase that's mentioned in verse number 2. Now, as we said, if you're a student of the Bible, you know exactly where we're at. Uh, Luke, after having pinned down the Gospel of Luke, he writes a second uh, history of the early church. But it begins with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in verse number 2 that Luke's recording all the things about the life of Jesus until the day in which He was taken up, after that He, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. As I read that today, I began to think about that concept. There's some things he gave them as he was departing. And I thought about, you know, it's a common thing in life, or it used to be. I don't know if uh, inflation will let it be for much longer, but it used to be a pretty common thing that when people left this life, there were things they wanted to leave behind them for those that were coming after them. Uh, very often we would use uh, the term inheritance we were talking about fiscal things uh, that maybe parents or grandparents would leave behind for their children. And the idea was I want to help them in their journey. There are things that I no longer need, but that they can use that can bolster them and fortify them and ready them for the things that they may face. Now, outside of the financial realm, we even have that same concept. But we oftentimes, instead of using the word inheritance, we use the word heritage. There are certain things that we ought to be leaving our children and leaving younger people that don't have a price tag on them, but that's because they're far beyond value. You know, the Bible says this, that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. I want to leave for my children a good name. I don't want them to have to be ashamed of how their father lived. I don't want them to have to uh, battle with and grapple with a bad testimony that is left for them. You know, the psalmist spoke about his heritage and said that the lines were fallen unto him in pleasant places. In other words, that the parameters of life, or that the structure of his life, he had been situated in such a way, talking about lines uh, being a geometric statement, being a statement regarding building, that there's some people that had built some things for him that he could then build off of. Let me say, I want to leave my kids a good foundation in their life. I want to teach them the Word of God. I want to teach them how to walk with God. I want to teach them how to worship God. I want to teach them that God is real. Listen to me, one of the greatest things you can ever teach a young person is that God is real. And you don't teach them that just by yelling it at them. You don't teach them that uh, just by smacking them over the head with it. You teach them that by showing them that God is real. They have to see that God is real and alive in your life in order to learn that on their own part. So it's not an uncommon concept, an idea, that there'd be things that we would leave behind. And we find the very same truth in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. We're told in verse 2, there were some things He gave His apostles, and it speaks specifically about commandments that had been given unto them. And certainly He had taught them, He had given them the great commission, He had taught them many things in His earthly ministry. But when we read these 11 verses, I think we find a handful of things that he left behind. And these are our heritage. Sitting here on this Wednesday night in prayer meeting, these are things the Lord Jesus has left for you and I just as he left for the apostles. The question I have for you tonight, are we availing ourselves of it? Are we living in the strength and reality of these things? Are we letting these things shape Our life, you better believe if you had uh, got a letter in the mail that some long lost uncle that you never knew nothing about had died a millionaire and had left it sitting for you in some Swiss bank account, you would avail yourself of it. You'd say, how can I get to it? And you'd start changing the decisions you make. You'd probably go out and buy you a brand new truck or I don't know what you'd do. Uh, You'd go out and do something. Uh, You'd use that money. It would change how you live. Well, in the same way, there are some things he's left us that should shape the way that we live. I want you to notice them with me. And if the Lord will help us, we'll just walk through and notice them tonight and exhort you a little bit and then go to the house. Look with me at verse number three. The Bible says this, to whom also, now speaking of the apostles, but we have the record of the apostles. And so it extends to us as well. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, meaning after his death, burial and resurrection, by many infallible proofs, meaning inerrant, meaning indisputable proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Let me say number one tonight, he left them an infallible proof of the reality of New Testament Christianity. Now what is this infallible proof that he has given us? And the Bible says many infallible proofs. And what it's speaking of is the multitude of occasions upon which the Lord appeared to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. But what is the very heart and substance of what's being spoken of here? It says in the next phrase, being seen of them 40 days and speaking things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The proofs that he gave them was his resurrected life that they were able to witness and behold. Can I tell you this tonight? We have the greatest foundation for a religion that any religion could ever hope for. We have the foundation of the indisputable resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have time to do it right now. A lot of times we'll preach a little bit on it come Easter time, but the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the most documented events. It is the one of the most rationally founded events throughout all of human history. It is unimaginable to think that the resurrection of Christ could be a hoax and Bible Christianity would still be thriving today. It's unimaginable to think that that hoax could have been perpetrated at that time with so many people alive. Whenever Paul gave testimony in 1 Corinthians 15, says he was seen of above, of 500 brethren, said he was seen of Cephas and of James and of John, uh, said that uh, you know we're, we have uh, received a confirmed witness of who he is. There's people alive, Paul says, during the day that he lived that could tell you that Jesus was risen from the dead. Paul could have never written that if it hadn't been true. He would have exposed, been exposed to be a charlatan and a liar. We could talk about the scriptural record and testimony of the resurrection. How that uh, it is not written as a hoax would be written. Uh, They used women as the witnesses and that would have been uncommon in that time. They named notable people that were known by name in that day like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. All the body of evidence taken together makes it infallible, indisputable that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And no other religion in the world can claim that sort of foundation. Uh, They are are based on such spurious concepts of people getting golden tablets in hats from angels and ideas of vague messages that do not carry any substance or life-transforming truth. But you and I hold the truth tonight in Bible Christianity. And we ought to You say, Preacher, how can I avail myself of that? By living in confidence and in boldness concerning the reality of it. Well, you don't have to apologize for being a Christian. You don't have to hang your head when people want to castigate Christianity as lacking evidence or proof. Hey, they may believe that because they choose to believe that, but they don't believe it because it's the proof of it. We can live in boldness and confidence that the Bible's the Word of God, that the resurrection of Christ is real. Hey, we haven't just cast our lot and hoping it's true. We know that it's true because of the way that it's changed our lives and because the evidence of it. So He gave them many infallible proofs. And Christianity is not some kind of blind leap into the dark, but rather it is a a person taking God at His Word and seeing the reason, the logic, the rationale that the Word of God sets forth. understand uh, that mankind is unreasonable. The Bible speaks of uh, men that are not reasonable, unreasonable men, all, all men have not the faith. Uh, but understand that the truth of the Word of God, it's not a hodgepodge of, of irrational stories and fables and, and ideas that have been cobbled together. No, it is a book with a foundation. It is a book that I hear all the time about how there's all these errors in the King James Bible, but can't nobody seem to find them when you ask them to find them, amen? You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying we have a real foundation for what we believe. And that's a precious thing. We don't have to wander about just accepting the uh, ludicrous rantings of some uh, prophet or some imam or some rabbi. We can ground ourselves on the inerrant truth of the Word of God and know that we have a firm foundation. He gave them an infallible proof. Look with me at verse 4. He says this, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart Now let's pause there. There's more to be said here in a moment, but I just want you to notice where they were. The Bible says being assembled together with them. I'd say number one, he gave them an infallible proof, but number two, he gave them an integral place in their life that they could go and get the support and strength and help that they needed. I understand that many would say the church did not really begin until on Pentecost. And some would say it began in John 20, whenever the Lord Jesus breathed on them, they received the Holy Ghost. Others would say it was at the day of Pentecost. And I think probably a lot of that arguing about that isn't going to amount to much in eternity. Uh, Certainly we're living in a day where the church is living and thriving and alive and vibrant today. Uh, You say, preacher, it looks backslidden and and Laodicean. Yeah, that's Christendom, but that's not the church. Amen. That's not true Bible Christianity. Uh, So uh, as we're living today, we could say that we are in a similar situation that they were in. And what we find here is that the Lord Jesus in this little group of believers has a model, a microcosm of the church today. They were assembled. They were together in one place. Notice who was there with them being assembled together with them. We have in that a picture of what we're doing here tonight. We've come and assembled together. Why have we done that? Well, we've done that because we want to meet with Him. We believe on the foundation and truth and authority of God's Word that will come together in His name uh, with the intention to worship Him and to honor Him and do so based upon the Word of God that He likewise will meet with us. And that's a precious thing. Listen, hey, uh, it, 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 don't take for granted the church. All throughout Old Testament worship, uh, there was no church as we know it today—a called-out assembly, a body of believers that have been uh, knit together by the gospel of Jesus Christ in common love and affection through the fellowship of salvation. It's a precious thing. Uh, if we didn't need the church, Christ wouldn't have loved the church and gave Himself for it, and He wouldn't have left it behind for us. Church is not just an optional thing. You say, preacher, who are you preaching to? Well, I ain't preaching the Wednesday night crowd. I just—you're standing in the way of my sermon, so you're getting preached at. Amen. It's just where the text took me. Uh, But I would just say that uh, it is a precious thing that we should not take for granted. We need the church. That's why he left us the church. If we didn't need the church, then why would he permit uh, for his precious bride to be hated and despised and buffeted and persecuted and loathed by the world for these 2,000 years? It must be a pretty important thing for Jesus to keep it going all this time. Uh, The church is an entity that has lived under constant hostility, pressure, and assault ever since the day uh, of its inception. It has been an entity under siege, an organism that has been constantly assaulted on every side and yet it has stood the test of time. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has a vested interest in keeping the church going. He's not doing it just for His sake. He's doing it for our sake. We need the house of God. It's a precious thing. He gave them an integral place. But then look at the rest of verse number four. It says, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. But I want you to notice the disposition that he recommends to them. He says, do not depart, but wait for the promise. You know what he gave them? He gave them an informed patience in their life. He revealed to them that there are going to be times in our life that we're going to have to wait on God to act. And it's not because God is dragging his feet, nor is it anything necessarily wrong with us. It is the nature of us being finite beings living on this moving continuum of time. But that being the case, he's reminded us that there are times when we must wait on God to work and to move and to act. Just because we're waiting does not mean that we're wandering. Uh, God does not uh, love idleness, nor does He love busyness for the sake of busyness. I'll tell you what God values is being in the will of God. If we're in the will of God, and if the will of God uh, demands of us patience, while well, we wait and desire for things to change or to develop in a way that we wish that it would. We do not have to worry that we are somehow betraying our calling. There are times, just as it was with the disciples, the will of God for this period of time was wait for God to move. When He moves, don't wait no longer. Be ready to move with Him. But during that time, you're going to have to wait on the Lord. And this would become foundational to the apostles. Uh, for uh, these all, much like the Old Testament saints did concerning the coming of the Messiah, those Old Testament saints died in the faith, not having received the promise. Well, Guess what? Every one of these apostles concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus, they died in the faith, not having received the promise. Uh, every single day of our life, people pass away that know the Lord and they die in the faith, not having received the promise. And so this patience of waiting on the Lord, allowing Him to bring things about in His time uh, is an attitude, a disposition. It is a hallmark of Bible Christianity. It is not idleness. It is not inactivity. It is not wavering or waffling, but rather it is a calm, resigned steadiness to let God unfold things in the way God sees fit. He left them an informed patience. Look down at verse number 6 with me. says this, when they therefore were come together They asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. In this phrase, he gave them an important perspective they needed to have. They were asking a question that was quite natural to them. They had lived in the boldness and confidence of an impending kingdom throughout the entire three years of our Lord's earthly ministry. They believed themselves to be on the immediate chronological cusp of that kingdom being brought into realization and into fruition. And now the Lord Jesus has died. He's been buried, risen from the dead. And for 40 days, He's walked amongst them. He's talked to them about the kingdom of God. He's talked to them about the plan of God. And now He's getting ready to depart. This naturally would produce questions on their part. They would, I mean, you'd ask it. I'd ask it. Lord, is, is it time yet? Is it time yet? I find myself many times in my life asking, Lord, is it time yet? Not necessarily about that thing in particular, although let me just back up and, and, and say it. There are times I wonder about that very question. Lord, when are you coming back? When are you going to set everything right? When are you going to deal with all the wickedness, Lord? Is now the time? Certainly in my life, and I bet it's true for you as well, there are times in your life when you're waiting for God to do something and you likewise begin to say, Lord, wilt thou at this time? You notice what he says here. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now that's an interesting statement, isn't it? It's easy to read that and sort of interpret it a little caustically. Almost like he's saying it's none of your business. But I don't think that's what the Lord's saying. He says it is not for you to know. Now what does he mean by that? He means it's not in your interest to know. In other words, and you've heard this before, if God dropped a crystal ball in our lap and we saw everything that was coming down the road, I I don't know what you'd do, but I'd probably climb up in the bed, pull the covers over my head, and just lay there and hide from what the future holds uh, in front of me. But the reality is God dispenses to us life day by day because that is the most effective means through which our faith can be grown and our relationship with Him can be developed and become robust, and it is the way that God can most easily unfold His will in our life. The reality is we don't need to know everything all the time. I'm not an advocate for ignorance, but I am an advocate for recognizing uh, that when it's time for us to know things, God will let us know things. There are things, He's not saying none of your business. He's been talking for three years about this kingdom. It wasn't inappropriate for them to ask. He was saying, you're benefited by not knowing this. He would go on to explain why that is. He says in verse number 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Notice the, the juxtaposition, the comparison of that word power. He says, the Father hath put some things in his own power. Those things it is not for you to know. But there is a power that God does desire for you to have. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. He gave them an important perspective. Uh, There's some things we don't need to know. We need to wait on God and let God unfold it in His own time. But then we see an enabling power He speaks of. He says, but there is a power that you have. That power is not the power to deduce everything uh, that, that tickles your fancy, everything that you wonder about, everything that you have a passing curiosity about. One of the things when I think about how I would do things if I was God, Uh, what life would be like if I had the power and knowledge and wisdom of God. The thing that I covet more than anything on that account is knowledge. I'd love to know things the way that God knows things, or at least I think I would love to know those things. But God in His wisdom doesn't permit me to. Why? Because I grow distracted. I'd grow uh disaffected. I, I would grow lazy. I would grow idle if I knew things. It would change the way I would behave and live. He says there's some things you're not going to know, but here's what you do need to know. I have the ability to give you all the power you need to face anything that you may face. He's given us the power to serve Him. He's given us the power uh, to wait on Him. He's given us the power uh to, uh and I, I hate to use the word divine, but to discern His will in our lives. Well, where does all that come from? He says, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. There are some things that God does not disclose to us. They're wondering when God's timing is going to play out. He says, you don't have to know everything about my timing, but what you do need to know is what your instructions are, what your responsibilities are, and the way that you will discern that and know and understand that is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Listen, I, I know we don't like to hear this because it implies that There's no answer coming after this, but it is the truth. We have everything we need in the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We have all we need to know how to conduct ourselves in life. We have all the power and wherewithal to live in the way that God expects us to live. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness and He's given us that inasmuch as He's given us of His Spirit. He's given us an enabling power in order to carry out the will and the work of God in our lives. None of us can look at God and say, I'm unequipped to serve the Lord. If you're saved by God's grace, you are thoroughly equipped to serve the Lord. Now, you're not going to find that ability in of yourself. You're going to have to mortify self. You're going to have to put self aside. But if you'll do that, you'll find that the Spirit of God gives you all that you need to carry out the will and work of God. He gave them an enabling power. Then look what he says. "Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And what are you going to do with that power? Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. He gave them an instructive plan. He said, this is what I want your life to be about. I want you to take this same life-transforming power that the gospel has, take the same thing that I've done in your life and carry it to those that are in need of hearing it in their own life. He went so far as to set out people groups that they were to reach. And I think if we look at these categorically and and regard them in in their relationship to the apostles, we get an idea of who he's talking about. Of course, those that were in Jerusalem would have been those that they were most comfortable with and those that were most immediately at hand, those that were closest to them. He talks about those that are in Judea, those that are in a broader region. He's saying you got to move out beyond your comfort zone. Go and reach those that you wouldn't reach except for you trying to reach them. I'm going to say that again. I want you to get it. Go and reach those that you would never reach were it not for the fact that you were trying to reach them. Some of us, we only ever witness to people that we half trip over. We ought to be seeking people, seeking opportunities. they were going to reach people in Judea, they were going to have to go looking for them. And then he says in Samaria... Those are the people they hated, they despised, that they would never have talked to had the gospel not compelled them to do so. And then he goes on, just in case we're afraid we're going to run out of work to do, he says, under the uttermost part of the earth. He's given us the plan for our life. Now, it does not mean that that answers every particular detail of our life. But of course, the Spirit of God will guide and direct us in those matters. But it has given us an overarching purpose to our life whatever other things may occupy our days and our attention and our responsibilities. And I'm not begrudging you those things. I don't believe God begrudges you those things. They are all to operate within the sphere and and subject to that overall purpose of being a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, while we're doing everything else, we ought to be doing that first and foremost. And in as much as we have those responsibilities to carry the gospel Uh, out to the world, that will carry us along many of the same paths that require us to carry out our daily responsibility. But we ought to always view ourselves primarily as being a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gives them an instructive plan. Look at verse number nine. He says this, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. I want you to think with me about why he left. Why did he leave? The blood had already been applied at the mercy seat. The uh, process of redemption, of securing redemption, salvation for mankind had already been effectuated. Why did he leave? Well, the answer to that is what's he doing right now? The Bible tells us this, that he's seated at the right hand of God the Father and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Here's what he did. He gave us an interceding priest in the throne room of God. Listen to what the Hebrews writer said in Hebrews 4.14. He says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. That's what he was doing in Acts chapter number 1. He was passing into the heavens. And he was doing that in the capacity of our great high priest. It says, That is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Don't give up is what he says. That's what it means. When it says, let us hold fast our profession, saying don't give up. He's not saying don't lose your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. He's saying don't give up. Don't quit serving God. Don't don't lay down. Keep going forward. Keep pressing forward. Why should we do that? For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Uh, there's times as you serve God, you're going to get discouraged. There's times as you serve God, you're going to get disillusioned. There's times as you serve God, you're going to wonder what it's all for. And in those times, don't give up. Look up. Look what he says. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says hold fast to your profession. There's going to be times you're going to feel like you're losing your grip. What do you do in those times? You march into the throne room of grace and you say, Lord, I need help. (laughs) I need help. I need strength. I need encouragement in these times and we can do so in boldness because we have an interceding priest. Because there is one at the right hand of God whose heart is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who knows exactly what we are experiencing. One of the great lies when we're discouraged that we tell ourselves is that no one understands. Why do we do that? Because if no one understands, if there's something proprietary about our suffering, then it excuses us to stay in our suffering. It excuses us to wallow in our despair because we can say... Other people would have wallowed in their despair had their despair been as severe as mine. Therefore, when we recognize that the Lord Jesus has experienced everything we've experienced, it precludes us from being able to do that because we've got to say, hey, could be nobody else has been through it, but Jesus has been through it. And if He's been through it, He can help me get through it. He is our interceding priest. Not only did He uh, give them an interceding priest, but look what it says in verse 10. It says, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as He went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. I like this. Which said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go into heaven. You know what He gave them? He gave them an energetic posture. They were doing what you or I would have been doing. They stand stand there slack-jawed, staring up into heaven, couldn't believe what they was looking at. And the angels remind them that This was not by accident. This was not by incident. This was by providence. He has ascended into heaven to do a job and He has left you here on earth to do a job. Why are you just standing here idly gazing up into the heavens? There's a work to do. You're to go back uh, into the city. You're to tell others about what has transpired. You're to share the truth of what God has done. In other words, He gave us our marching orders. He told us how we're to live. They were standing in idle amazement at the wonder and awe of His ascension. And they are jarred back. They are arrested back into energetic service because the time is short. Can I tell you, if we're not careful, listen, just church, if we're not careful, we'll be exactly like them. We'll spend all of our life just staring up into heaven in wonder and amazement at what God has done in our lives. Now you say, preacher, shouldn't we be amazed? Shouldn't we be awestruck by what He's done? Sure, we should be amazed. We should be awestruck, uh, but we shouldn't be thunderstruck by it. We shouldn't just stand still and not do anything. We should not allow that to satiate our our drive to to serve Him. We shouldn't let it anesthetize our passion for Him. Christianity is not... I'll tell you how I heard a preacher say it one time. A preacher was talking about the foundation. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus. He said the foundation's wonderful, but you don't build anything by standing around and staring at the foundation all day. It's good. We ought to to rejoice in all that He's done. I'm not advising that we move past the wonder of it all, but I am saying that the wonder of it all should not paralyze us from going in the strength of the will of the Father. Uh, He said, listen, you need to get busy. There's a work to do. There's a job to do. Don't just stand here gawking. Go and serve Him and labor for Him. And then notice what He says at the end of verse 11. I'll mention this and be done. This same Jesus, He says, which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go into heaven. You know what He left them with? He left them with an encouraging promise. That this was not the last time that they had seen Him. That He was indeed coming back. You and I still today live in the strength of this promise. Uh, That's the blessed hope uh, that the Bible speaks about that Paul wrote about. Uh, The blessed hope of His glorious appearing that we are looking forward to the day when He comes back first for His own, for His bride, and then afterwards to be revealed in glory with the angels from on high and the hosts of heaven. Uh, He left us promising us He is coming back. That should not paralyze us into inactivity. I told you earlier they when they asked without this time. Uh, restore the kingdom. If he had answered, if he had just told them what they wanted to know, if he had said, I mean, and I can't speak to him because I don't know how long it'll be till the Lord returns. But I know today we're sitting 2,000 years plus from it. And if he had said, well, it's going to be a little over 2,000 years, they probably would have despaired. They lived in the strength of believing that it could have been at any moment. That's not by accident. <laughs> the imminent return of the Lord Jesus, the imminence of the rapture is meant by divine design to spur us to urgency in our life. Recognizing that He could come back at any moment. Man, that, that gives me the encouragement I need. Has it ever dawned on you that this day could be your last day? Your very last day. Uh, with all of its sorrow and suffering and with all of its missed opportunities, this could be our last day. He wanted to leave us on edge. That's not by accident. He wanted to leave us with an attitude of expectation and anticipation in our life. Why is that? Because that's what makes Bible Christianity live. When it resigns itself to just dusty dogmatism, when it resigns itself to just sort of theoretical sermonizing, and it's no longer about living a life that is meaningful, that changes things, then it robs the heart of what Bible Christianity is meant for. So he left us waiting, expecting, knowing at any moment, he could return. The question I have, are we living in this strength? These disciples went in the strength of this and they changed the world. What are we doing in light of these things? Because the same things he left them, he has left us as well. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open and I don't know what God may have spoken to you about, but I know that if he spoke to you about something, it must have been important. Is there an area of your life that you've allowed to to slack that you've allowed to slip. Is there something in your life in the realm of dedication, devotion? Maybe that the fellowship that you have with the Lord, you've allowed it to grow cold, but something in your life that needs to be addressed. Or maybe it's one of these truths that have been shared tonight. Something about something he left us that you realize, you know, I'm really not living in light of the strength of that. Why don't you address that thing with him tonight? We have a gracious God that's ready to set those things right, that's ready to forgive us, that's ready to restore us, that's ready to work mightily in our hearts and minds. Why don't you meet Him and let God do that work in you? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it His precious